Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome. We're delighted to have you here today. Uh, This is a particularly important day for me. I remember uh, 25 years ago being involved in the fight to get this done. And so to be here to celebrate with you today is so important. Uh, Like all of you, I have a deep appreciation for the fundamental freedoms that we share as Americans. Our great experiment in liberty has thrived through times of war and peace. Our nation is governed according to the longest surviving constitution in world history because the founders designed our republic to last. To be immune from the passions of partisans and resistant to the schemes of power-seeking factions. They enumerated our freedoms so there would be no mistake about where the government was not welcome to tread. Principal among these freedoms is our first liberty, religious freedom. That is what we're here to discuss and to celebrate today as we mark the 25th anniversary of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Most of you here likely understand the circumstances that led Congress to pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and we'll hear more from our distinguished speaker and the panel that follows, so I'll only say a very few words about that. The country was very different uh, 25 years ago. A coalition from across the ideological spectrum, including everyone from Nadine Strassum of the ACLU to Mike Ferris, who is now CEO of Alliance Defending Freedom, came together to bolster freedoms that were limited by an unfortunate Supreme Court decision. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed unanimously in the House of Representatives and 97 to 3 in the Senate. Boy, have times changed. I wish we could get that kind of bipartisan support today for something that is so important like this. The political left has actively worked to undercut our freedoms from its demand that Christian colleges, Catholic nuns, and even the March for Life provide abortion-inducing drugs in their insurance plans, to attacking the freedom of small business owners and faith-based ministries to live and work according to their faith. The left has proven no itself is not a freedom for this liberty that we're here to celebrate today. But thankfully, this administration has already reversed a number of the previous administration's attacks on the freedoms our founders promised to every American. And we are confident that the chief law enforcement agency in our nation, 
the Department of Justice will defend, not ignore, the Constitution and the freedoms protected under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. We are so honored to have with us today Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker. He understands how important it is to safeguard our freedoms and enforce the laws of our land. He answered the call to serve during one of the most crucial moments in recent history. Prior to becoming Acting Attorney General, Mr. Whitaker acted as Chief of Staff to Attorney General Jeff Sessions. He was appointed by the U.S. Uh, appointed as the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Iowa on June 15, 2004, by then-President George W. Bush. Previously, he was a managing partner in a very prestigious law firm based in Des Moines, Iowa. He was also the Executive Director for FACT, the Foundation for Accountability and Civic Trust, between 2014 and 2017. Mr. Whitaker graduated with a Master of Business Administration, Juris Doctor, and Bachelor of Arts from the University of Iowa, where he also played three seasons as tight end for the Iowa Hawkeyes football team. Please join me in welcoming Attorney, Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Kay, for that kind introduction. Um, I am uh, probably old enough now where people should forget what I've done on the football field and remember what I did in the uh, political football field of uh, Washington, D.C. But I uh, appreciate your years of service, Kay, and, and, uh, and we were talking earlier about your, your son having worked at the Department of Justice, and uh, you know how important the Department of Justice is to all of us that have served there and how special a place it is. Um, I want to also thank Ed Meese, former Attorney General, for being here. He's he's become a friend and a mentor uh, for me uh, when I was Chief of Staff and now as Acting Attorney General, and I really appreciate him and what he stands for uh, in the um, conservative legal movement and uh, in in a uh, exemplar of public service, and I'm also, um, I cannot ever uh, get enough time with him talking about Ronald Reagan and what it was like to uh, serve with him and to be a, a friend of Ronald Reagan, you know, kind of the, the, the person uh, that most uh, made me who I am today is Ronald Reagan, and uh, your service with him as Attorney General and, and also in the state of California is just uh, really exceptional. Um, I also want to thank Jennifer Marshall, John Malcolm, uh, and especially uh, the panelists today. Each one of you brings a unique perspective to today's discussion, but we are all united in our shared values of tolerance and mutual respect. I also want a special thanks to Emily Cow, director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society for organizing this event and for her many years as an attorney dedicated to the protection of religious liberty. I also want to take a, a, a before I start my official remarks, I just want to take a, 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 a personal moment to just say how exceptionally well I thought Bill Barr did yesterday in his Senate uh, confirmation hearing. Um, it really, I've always believed it, that he is the right 
person to take over the Department of Justice and lead us into the next um, chapter in the Department of Justice's history. He, uh, he, he comes from the perfect place where he is raising his hand, willing to serve, but doesn't need the job, and that's always a good place to be. And so I, I will be happy to hand him the keys to a well-oiled machine uh, at the Department of Justice and, and allow him to, to move forward with uh, his agenda and especially the, the president's agenda. I want to start uh, my official remarks by wishing everyone a happy Religious Freedom Day. 233 years ago, the Virginia Senate passed the Statute for Religious Freedom, which remains one of the most eloquent defenses of religious freedom ever written. It states that, quote, truth is great and will prevail if left to herself. Truth has nothing to fear unless disarmed of her natural weapons, free argument, and debate. The statute protected Virginians from being compelled to attend or support any religious service or ministry or from being punished because of their beliefs. The statute did not claim that these were privileges or gifts to the people. It says, quote, we declare that these rights hereby asserted are of the natural rights of mankind. The author of the bill, Thomas Jefferson, considered it one of his greatest achievements. In fact, on his tombstone, it does not say that he served as President of the United States. It says three things, that he authored the Declaration of Independence, that he founded the University of Virginia, and that he authored the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. When the bill passed, Jefferson was in France as a diplomat. For those of you who have seen Hamilton, you're very familiar with the What Did I Miss? that opens the second act. The, legislature, the legislator who championed the bill was a 34-year-old delegate named James Madison. Within just a few years, Madison became the father of the Constitution and authored the First Amendment. Jefferson, Madison, and the rest of the founders took great care to protect the rights of religious people in this country. And we look back now, we can see why. Because religious freedom has made this country stronger. It is undeniable. Every day in America, religious charities feed the hungry, care for the sick and elderly, and give our children a good education. And I will point out as well, they are serving the crisis that we currently face on the border. Religious groups are there on the front lines dealing with that situation. People of faith can be found in every walk of life and in every corner of this land, including my home state of Iowa. Good citizens of every creed have made contributions that have enriched this nation. That benefits all of us, whether we share their religious belief or not. Religious freedom makes our country stronger, and that is why threats to religious freedom are also threats to our national strength as a people. For more than two centuries, the American people have recognized that. In November, we celebrated a much more recent statute than the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. We marked the 25th anniversary of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or what we all call RIFRA. RIFRA codified in statute the strict scrutiny test that the Supreme Court had famously used in Sherbert and in Yoder. Under RIFRA, the government cannot burden someone's religious exercise unless it is seeking to further a compelling interest and doing so by the least restrictive means it can. 
Under RIFRA, religious freedom is not absolute, but it is protected by one of the highest standards under constitutional law. Government is still able to fulfill its purposes just without infringing on people's rights. It is a remarkable thing for any government to oppose such a restraint on itself, and it is unique to the American system, and we can look at many other countries that don't protect the free exercise of religion and the other protections we have in RIFRA, and, and there, the examples are many. It would have been much easier for a government to disregard, disregard the costs on individual liberty and conscience. And in all too many countries, as I mentioned, that's exactly what governments are currently doing. But the enactment of RIFRA was a bold affirmation that religious freedom and the freedom of conscience are precious and deserving of protection, even when it makes things a little harder for the government. This affirmation is even more striking because it is the result of a consensus. As Kay mentioned in the opening remarks, RIFRA's enactment was completely bipartisan just 25 years ago. RIFRA was offered by then-Congressman Chuck Schumer. It passed the House unanimously and was approved in the Senate 97 to 3. When President Clinton signed this law, he said, it is, an interesting, it is interesting to note what a broad coalition of Americans came together to protect perhaps the most precious of all American liberties, religious freedom. Vice President Al Gore remarked, after he invented the Internet, that when you have National Association of Evangelicals and the ACLU, the Traditional Values Coalition, and the People for the American Way, all on the same side, we're doing something right. What a difference 25 years makes. Today, many of RIFRA's original supporters, including the ACLU, have changed their minds. In recent years, when some states have attempted to pass their own versions of RIFRA, they have been met with bitterness and hostility. Meanwhile, others have disregarded both the spirit and the letter of RIFRA. They have tried to use the power of the state to make people choose between following their core beliefs and being good citizens, even when it is not remotely necessary. For example, we've seen NUDs ordered to pay for contraceptives. We've seen a United States senator refer to an evangelical Christian nominated by President Trump as, quote, not someone this country is supposed to be about, close quote. We've witnessed the ordeal of Jack Phillips in Colorado. That ordeal, unfortunately, is still going on today. We've seen groups that defend religious freedom, including one that is undefeated in the Supreme Court of the United States over the last seven years, labeled as hate groups. Sadly, there are many, many more examples that I'm sure everyone in this room is familiar with, and maybe even is a part of a fight for religious freedom. But I'm proud to say this administration is doing something about it. We have a president who is standing up for the First Amendment. Soon after he took office, President Trump ordered the Department of Justice to issue legal guidance to the executive branch on legal protections for religious liberty. In October of 2017, just about the same time I joined the Department of Justice as Chief of Staff, we issued that guidance, which explains the fundamental religious liberty principles in the Constitution and in federal statutes like RIFRA. We've been putting that guidance into action by defending the rights of the American people in both criminal and civil cases. 
Under President Trump, we have obtained 14 indictments and 10 convictions in cases involving attacks or threats against houses of worship and against individuals because of their religion. Under this administration, we have indicted 50 hate crime defendants. And in just the last fiscal year, we have obtained 30 hate crime convictions. With regard to civil cases, we have gone to court all across America to protect American citizens of a wide variety of faiths and beliefs. We defended parents in Montana who claimed that the state barred their children from a private school scholarship program just because they attend a religious school. Under President Trump, the department has filed five amicus briefs in cases alleging discrimination in zoning laws. We have done so on behalf of a Hindu temple, a Catholic church, and we filed a lawsuit on our own behalf, on our own, on behalf of an Orthodox Jewish congregation. We have also settled four cases involving mosques. We got involved in First Amendment lawsuit filed by the, America, the Alliance Defending Freedom against Georgia Gwinnett College, a taxpayer-funded school that allegedly punished a student for sharing his faith outside of the designated free speech zone. All too familiar on our nation's campuses. And most recently, the department filed an amicus brief defending a memorial honoring soldiers killed in World War I. The memorial is a large cross built using private funds that stood for nearly 90 years without any complaint. But now the plaintiffs say that it endorses one religion over another. They want it to be destroyed, but we believe that it should stand and continue to honor the memory of the fallen so long ago in a, on a different continent uh, in the greatest war, as it was called. In July, we announced our Religious Liberty Task Force, which is responsible for making sure that we respect the conscience rights of the 115,000 Department of Justice employees. It is also responsible for reviewing if there are instances in which the federal government is discriminating against religious institutions simply because they are religious, which is illegal under the Supreme Court's Trinity Lutheran decision, as many of you are familiar with that case. That review will help us stay aggressive in defending the right of free exercise in court. We are proud of all of these efforts in the courtroom, but not everything needs to be decided by a judge, by someone that oftentimes, well, I say this to my friends, I'm not going to say this about all federal judges, but once they put on the black robe, sometimes I've seen, in my personal experience, reason and common sense shoot out their ears. But that's only my own personal experience. But these cases don't always have to be decided by a judge. In the long run, perhaps it is most important to uphold RIFRA in spirit, not just in the letter of law and not just in these course cases. RIFRA promotes authentic tolerance because RIFRA makes a solemn promise to the people of this nation that we can find a place for them, regardless of who they are and regardless of their personally held beliefs. RIFRA affirms that good citizenship is open to every American, whether they're religious or not. And above all, it underscores the fact that government's primary task is to protect the rights of all of its citizens. That is why I am hopeful that we can recover the consensus and support of religious freedom 
that came together 25 years ago. If we don't do that, then we can create a culture. If we can do that, and if we do do that, we can create a culture that promotes true tolerance and respect for all citizens. And so as we continue to carry out RIFRA, I am grateful that we still have a broad coalition of supporters like those of you here today in this room. And I just want to say in conclusion that I hope in 25 years, when we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of RIFRA, we can all come together in a truly supportive, collaborative fashion and remember what the Virginia legislature and the, and the U.S. Congress knew, that everyone of faith and those without faith need to all live together in harmony and all pull in the same directions so that our country, the United States of America, can continue to be the shining city on the hill that President Reagan so artfully painted the picture for all of us when he was president. And I just want to say, may God continue to bless the United States of America. May God be with you as you go on to your day-to-day -day struggles and challenges and celebrations. And may, may God bless the United States of America. Thank you all so much. everyone and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Tom Jipping, direct, Deputy Director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Uh, and before I came to um, the Heritage Foundation, I worked for Senator Orrin Hatch for 15 years. He was the principal Republican author of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. I came to Washington 30 years ago, just a few months before the Supreme Court heard arguments in a case titled Employment Division versus Smith. Following the decision in that case, our organization helped launch the Coalition for the Free Exercise of Religion. And when he signed RIFRA into law in November of 1993, President Clinton thanked the Coalition for what he called the central role they played in drafting this legislation and working so hard for its passage. That coalition grew to more than 70 organizations and was like none other that I've ever known. It included, as does our panel today, different faiths, it included the American Humanist Association and the National Association of Evangelicals. It included Americans United for Separation of Church and State and Concerned Women for America. It included the ACLU and the American Association of Christian Schools. Only the most profound and fundamental cause could bring those groups together. That cause was religious freedom. 
America's founders said that this is a natural right of mankind. Congress has unanimously declared religious freedom to be a universal human right, and presidents in their Religious Freedom Day proclamations have said it's a fundamental human right that inherently belongs to every human being. So when the Supreme Court in the Smith decision devalued religious freedom by weakening its constitutional protection, Congress responded with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. RIFRA protects religious freedom in two ways, by creating a high hurdle for government to interfere with religion and by applying that standard across the board. Both of these elements are being challenged today and this is what we're here to talk about, and I'd like to introduce our panel. Howard Slew is a founder and general counsel of the Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty. He's an attorney practicing in Washington and received his law degree from Hofstra University. Osmo Udin is an attorney with experience working for Beckett, which is no doubt well known to many of you, and is the founding editor-in-chief of a web magazine addressing gender and Islam. She's also affiliated with the Religious Freedom Center at the Museum and was director of strategy for the Center for Islam and Religious Freedom. She received her law degree from the University of Chicago. Greg Baylor is senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, where he is director of the Center for Religious Schools. He currently represents 19 nonprofit organizations in RIFRA-related challenges to the birth control mandate of the Affordable Care Act. He received his law degree from Duke University. Now I'll hand it over to my colleague, Emily Cow, director of the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society here at Heritage. Thanks. Thank you very much, Tom. And and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. So I want to start by asking the panelists to look back over the last 25 years so, as you've all heard, in 1993, this incredible coalition came together around the idea that we might not agree on who God is, but we all agree that every person should be able to practice their religious beliefs without government coercion. And both the members of the coalition and those in Congress who voted for this bill, they saw this exceptionally high standard of judicial review of government burdens on religious exercise as a means of fostering tolerance amidst our deep differences. So I'd like you to address how has RIFRA impacted the religious communities that you represent and what impact has it had on peaceful pluralism? Thank you. RIFRA allows Jews to participate in American life without having to explain the intricacies of our religious practices to Congress. As we've heard, in Employment Division versus Smith, the Supreme Court held that the First Amendment's Free Exercise Clause only invalidates laws that specifically target religious practices. It does not affect laws that apply to everyone and merely incidentally burden religious exercise. So a statute that prohibited Native Americans from using peyote for religious purposes would be unconstitutional. But a statute that banned everyone from using peyote and only incidentally affected Native Americans would be permissible under the First Amendment. In his opinion, Justice Scalia explained that if religious groups want exemptions from generally applicable laws, laws that apply to everyone and don't target religions, they have to obtain such accommodations through the political process on a case-by-case -case basis. They have to go to the legislature and explain why the legislature should exempt them from this law because of their religious practices. That may work very well for majority religions, whose practices are well known, 
but it's less effective for minority religions. Congress isn't especially likely to accidentally burden majority religious practices because those practices are well-known and well-understood. If Congress goes after a majority religion, it's probably on purpose. Therefore, members of majority religions wouldn't have to seek political accommodations very often, but Congress is more likely to innocently burden minority religious groups like Jews who have obligations that are less well-known and less well-understood by Congress. Thus, under Justice Scalia's proposal, members of minority faiths like Jews would be more likely to find themselves in front of Congress requesting an accommodation and having to justify their faith. RIFRA solves this problem by offering blanket exemptions to laws that unnecessarily burden religious exercise. There's no need to go and explain your faith to Congress on a case-by-case basis because a blanket accommodation is offered. This has been borne out by the data. A recent review of cases indicates that minority religious groups use RIFRA most frequently, which should be well expected. Jews specifically have used RIFRA to protect their religious freedom in a number of instances. For example, a Jewish Air Force chaplain brought a case protecting his right to sermonize on whatever topic he wanted to talk about. The military had taken the position that they could prohibit the chaplain from speaking about topics that weren't essential to his faith. The court properly applied RIFRA and said that the military had no business deciding what was or wasn't core to the chaplain's faith and that he was free to sermonize on whatever topic he wanted to talk about. Jews have also used religious liberty laws to protect their right to build synagogues and religious schools, notwithstanding restrictive zoning laws, unless, of course, such laws are served to a compelling government interest. Jewish prisoners have frequently used religious liberty laws to obtain things like kosher food, sacramental wine, and other ritual items that they need to practice their faith in prison. One other way to highlight the importance of RIFRA to Jews is to look at how vulnerable we are in instances where RIFRA doesn't apply. The Supreme Court had decided that RIFRA can only apply to federal laws. So if a state wants to offer the same protection that RIFRA applies, they need to pass their own RIFRAs. Some states have, and some states have not. And as we heard from the Attorney General, that's become a matter of controversy when states like Indiana recently have tried to pass RIFRA laws. In California, an animal rights group sued to prevent a local rabbi from performing an annual ritual associated with the high holidays and with repentance. Some rabbis, in performing this ritual, kill chickens and donate the chickens to poor families as part of the ritual. An animal rights group sued under a generally applicable unfair competition law to prevent the rabbi from killing chickens. Apparently, the animal rights group was worried that Purdue couldn't compete with the rabbi. The animal rights group repeatedly stated in their briefing that if California had RIFRA, the rabbis might have a defense. But they insisted over and over again that they should win this case because California didn't have a RIFRA. And in essence, they scored a victory because they managed to drag the litigation on so long that the rabbis were not able to perform the ritual that year. If RIFRA had been in place, that wouldn't have happened. A similar situation could arise in areas of critical importance to American Jews. For example, if a state that doesn't have a RIFRA passed a generally applicable law banning circumcision or ritual slaughter, Jews would have a difficult time mounting a defense. The legislature, of course, wouldn't say we're banning this ritual slaughter or circumcision to go after the Jews, and therefore you would need RIFRA because the First Amendment would not protect us. This isn't merely a a sky-is-falling hypothetical. Some European countries have already moved to ban circumcision and ritual slaughter, and in fact, San Francisco tried to ban circumcision. Where RIFRA RIFRA exists, that would be the Jews' first line of defense against its laws, but where RIFRA doesn't exist, they would be vulnerable. RIFRA's protection is especially important for Jews and other minority religions. It should be preserved where it exists, and states that don't yet have RIFRA should adopt them without controversy.
Thank you. I'm going to ask that you please hold your applause for all the panelists until the end so we can get through what they'd like to say. And also, I should add that feel free to address the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, which is a sister statute to RIFRA. Great. Thank you. Um, so Howie mentioned uh, some of the data that, that uh, bears out the fact that RIFRA has mostly been used uh, successfully by religious minorities. And that's something that I think many people don't realize, especially in this day and age and the period after the very controversial Hobby Lobby case, where RIFRA, for many Americans, is suddenly all about enabling discrimination by conservative Christians against women and LGBTQ individuals. Um, so given this widespread perception, several scholars of religious liberty jurisprudence have dug into the cases to see if there's any truth to that claim. And so one study called Sex, Drugs, and Eagle Feathers by my former colleague Luke Goodrich did an empirical analysis of religious liberty cases after Hobby Lobby, and he looked at cases specifically in the Tenth Circuit and reviewed over 10,000 decisions, uh, focusing on every religious freedom decision in the last five and in some cases, in some cases, 10 years. Um, and after this very extensive analysis, he found that, one, religious liberty cases are still, are still really rare. Um, they only make up a 0.6% of the federal docket. And contrary to predictions that religious people would be able to wield Hobby Lobby as a trump card, successful cases are even more rare. And there have only been five winning issues within the Tenth Circuit in the last five years, and those pertain to Sharia, polygamy, eagle feathers, contraception, and the Ten Commandments. He also notes that despite the, this misunderstanding that Christians would be the prime beneficiaries of the Hobby Lobby decision, um, the data actually shows that's religious minorities who uh, continue to benefit the most. Um, another scholar, Christopher Lund, actually looked more broadly um, at all cases since RFRA was enacted, and he found, again, that the majority of RFRA and state RFRA cases have little to do with discrimination or sexual morality or the culture wars. And these cases get almost no attention, even by the scholars in the field. And so Lund writes, whatever else can be said of them, RIFRA and state RIFRAs have, have been valuable for religious minorities who often have no other recourse when the law conflicts with their most basic religious obligations. And then he goes on to list a few cases. He lists a case involving a five-year-old Native American boy who was told by his public school district that the school policy forbade boys to, to, uh, from having long hair. So the girls in the school could have long hair, but the, the boys couldn't. Um, and then and the court in that case was able to use a Texas RIFRA to be able to win him this right to grow his hair in accordance with his religious beliefs. RIFRA has also protected a Jehovah's Witness from having to pledge allegiance to the U.S. Constitution in violation of her belief that she can only pledge allegiance to God. And it also came to the rescue um, for a, two sick children who are not allowed to carry their kirpans to school. So the kirpan is a small, blunt ceremonial dagger. The Sikh Articles of Faith obligates all Sikhs to carry the dagger as a constant reminder about his or her obligation to protect and serve the, the, the weak. And so in Chima v. Thompson, the school forced the students to choose between school expulsion and criminal prosecution and their violation of their religious convictions. And we can understand to some extent that the, the school would have, would have legitimate concerns related to carrying a small dagger into school. Uh, but given the bluntness of it and the, the, the relatively harmless nature of this, of this um, article of faith, RIFRA was able to, the court was able to use RIFRA to strike a balance there. We understand you have a concern, but there's ways that you can uh, tarot, it's a t more narrowly tailor um, the solution um, and, and not ban it so broadly. And then when it comes to Muslims, in the post-9-11 context, there has been a startling increase in anti-Muslim prejudice and discrimination, 
with extremely sharp rates in, in the last co couple years, in particular in, in, in hate crimes against Muslims, um, in, including more specifically Muslim women headscarves. And in these cases, RIFRA uh, provides heightened protection. Many of the Muslim religious liberty wins, um, however, have been in the prison and in, and in the land use context, as uh, Emily pointed out. And that's important also, so those, are, those have occurred under the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, or RELUPA, but RELUPA and RIFRA are intrinsically connected. Um, as originally passed in 1993, RIFRA applied to all three levels of government, federal, state, and local, but after the U.S. Supreme Court's 1997 ruling in the city of Bernie v. Florida, uh, v. Flores, RIFRA applied only to the federal government, not to state or local governments. So this basically just opened up all the space for uh, religious minorities to continue facing uh, restrictions on their on their religious practice. So in response to Bernie, um, in 2000, Congress passed RLUPA uh, to correct some of the constitutional infirmities of RIFRA. So under RLUPA specifically, Muslims have won pretty big. Um, most recently, the most, one of the most prominent cases is a recent win, 9-0, uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in a prisoner case called Holt v. Hobbs. Uh, Gregory Holt, who's also known as Abdul Malik Muhammad, was an inmate of the Arkansas Department of Corrections and a practicing Salafi Muslim. And he needed the prison to accommodate his ability to grow a beard in accordance with his religious practice. Many Muslim men grow the beard as a way to emulate the Prophet Muhammad. And so and he was willing to accommodate um, and say that he would basically just limit the beer to one inch. And believe it or not, the, the, the prison um, re refused to accommodate him, saying that this one inch beard was going to allow him to bring in contraband, uh, notwithstanding the fact that most other prisons in the U.S. Uh, allow uh, people to it would allow prisoners to grow beards for both secular and religious reasons, and that there are obvious ways to be able to check a very short beard to see if there's anything hidden in it. Um, and so Justice Alita wrote the opinion for the 9-0 majority. Uh, the court held that the prison had violated RLUPA. The court relied specifically on Hobby Lobby when it held that Holt met the standard for accommodation. That, that is, that an accommodation must be based on a sincerely held religious belief. So that's a really concrete example of how Hobby Lobby came into play in the Muslim context. And then the land use context, we've seen quite a few cases of hostility against um, Muslim communities trying to build houses of worship. A particularly notorious example is one in um, Murfreesboro, Tennessee in 2012, where it was actually argued in court uh, that the Muslims should not be able to build a house of worship because Islam is not a religion and therefore does not get protections under RLUPA or the First Amendment. Um, and it was uh, a pretty bizarre argument. Unfortunately, it went on a little bit longer than it should have been allowed to, but in the end, the Islamic Center prevailed. Uh, a more recent case in 2017, it was in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. After five years, 39 public hearings, and two lawsuits, the Islamic Society of Basking Ridge was finally able to build a new mosque. Bernard, Bernard's Township had refused to let the society begin construction based on the alleged issues with minor details of its proposal, including the size of the parking lot. These concerns about parking, et cetera, were largely a cover for anti-Muslim discrimination. As The Atlantic explained, this case was a particularly nasty and controversial example of a local board discriminating against a religious group that wanted a place to worship. But while the Bernard's Township case is distinctive, it is no way unique. Religious discrimination in the U.S. often happens in the most quotidian settings, including debates over zoning ordinances. So using RLUPA, the Basking Ridge Mosque reached a settlement of $3.25 in damages and attorney's fees. 
In 2014, a mosque in Bridgewater, New Jersey settled for almost $8 million. In 2018, the mosque in Bayonne, New Jersey settled for $400,000. So definitely under RELUPA, Muslims have, have won big. Thank you. Thank you, Asma. Greg? Well, thanks, Emily, for inviting me to participate in this panel, and, and I enjoyed the remarks of my co-panelists. Um, you asked us to look back 25 years. It's a long time. Um, and in a sense, my religious liberty practice grew with RIFRA. It was in 1993 when I first heard of the existence of religious liberty litigation and religious liberty <coughs> advocates, and uh, soon thereafter uh, joined up with Christian Legal Society and its Center for Law and Religious Freedom. And I look back on those days, and I can confirm, as you said, and as Mrs. James said, and as uh, Attorney General Whitaker said, things have changed dramatically. I was very surprised when I first started that there were these meetings that consisted of all of the kinds of groups all across the religious and ideological spectrums that were mentioned before. People for the American Way, ACLU, National Association of Evangelicals, Southern Baptist Convention, all pulling together on their oars, pushing the boat in the same direction. Uh, what I unfortunately witnessed soon thereafter was, an, was a, a breakup of this coalition. Um, right after RIFRA was adopted, uh, this coalition hung together to defend the constitutionality of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It hung together to uh, urge the courts to adopt robust interpretations of RIFRA in the courts. One of the first cases was a very unique and odd situation involving uh, a donor who to a church who went bankrupt, and bankruptcy trustee, ironically named Christians, uh, was trying to claw back that donation from the church. And the church asserted a RIFRA defense in the bankruptcy case. And unfortunately, the Clinton administration, which had lobbied so vociferously and effectively for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, initially adopted an understanding of RIFRA that really gutted the statute and drained it of its effectiveness. And the RIFRA coalition, all of these diverse groups, responded by saying no and persuaded that administration to change its mind about that case. Uzma um, mentioned the Bernie case, which eliminated RIFRA's applicability to states and local governments, which I think, as we all know, can sometimes be the most threatening governments with respect to the freedom of religious uh, exercise. And that's when the coalition really started to break up because in the wake of that decision, there was an effort to, to bring these groups back together and say, we can fix the problem that the Supreme Court identified. We can identify sufficient sources of constitutional authority, whether it be the Commerce Clause or Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, to do a RIFRA, take two, right, that applies to states and local governments. And in that short period of time between the adoption of RIFRA in 1993 and the partial striking down of it in 1997 in Flores. It really truly was, and I hate to be partisan about this, the left end of the spectrum that had decided at that point that robust protections of religious liberty posed a threat to the advancement of gay rights. They essentially subordinated their belief in religious liberty to their stronger belief in the advancement of gay rights. And that's why we only have RELUPA, which is great, and I'm glad we have it. And I'm glad that you mentioned some of the many instances in which Muslims have found it necessary to use our lupa to vindicate their rights. That, of course, is true of the Christian community as well. 
One of the first RIFRA cases was asserted right here in Washington, D.C. by Western Presbyterian Church, kind of in the West End, uh, D.C., Foggy Bottom area. They were just trying to feed the homeless. And the District of Columbia government said that you can't do this. This is a violation of land use regulations or whatever. And Western Pres was one of the first to assert a RIFRA defense to the charge that the district had asserted against them. And those kinds of land use cases go on even till today involving Christian congregations. Just last, late last year, ADF, my organization, settled a case against the city of Laurel, Maryland, which was allowing all kinds of groups to get together and use space, uh, meeting space in the downtown center, but not churches. Because, of course, they don't generate tax revenue, so that's one of the reasons why it was necessary for our client uh, to assert a or LUPA claim in that instance. But I guess it would be, I would be remiss not to identify sort of the biggest cases involving Christians and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And that, of course, is the contraceptive mandate cases. Um, as you know, all, I believe all of the challengers uh, to the mandate were Christians of some stripe, whether they were Roman Catholic or Evangelical Protestant. And this was a fight that was, in my judgment, was unnecessary. Uh, there were models in the states of contraceptive mandates that had broad exemptions for religious plan sponsors. But the previous administration, some say deliberately, uh, picked a fight by crafting an extraordinarily narrow religious exemption. And it required all of these entities, including many of my clients, to make a choice, right, between violating their conscience uh, and providing drugs that they think uh, destroy life or to comply with a, uh, or to or to disobey the law, as it were, and face unsustainable fines, six, seven figures every year. One of the unremarked upon aspects of of those cases was the practical value that these cases served to the to the entities that asserted them. Uh, there are some that say that this was all just symbolic. This was just uh, about being opposed to the president or something like that. The reality is that most of my clients, instead of facilitating access to abortive patients, would have dropped their health care plans. They would have let, they would have, their employees would have no option to get health care through their employers and instead would have had to go on to the exchanges, which as many know were not the best option. Same thing with respect to student plans. A lot of my Clients were colleges, and they sponsor student plans. They weren't required by law to do that. And we saw it. Steubenville University of, uh, in, uh, Franciscan University of Steubenville, they dropped their student health plan rather than comply with this law. Now, fortunately, many of our clients were able to secure judgments under RIFRA and were able to continue offering uh, their health plans. But again, I think to, to anticipate our next point of discussion, I think the seeds of the challenges that we see being asserted against RIFRA now are back in really the late 90s, uh, mid-90s, between the adoption of RIFRA and just four years later when it was partially struck down in Burnley. Thanks, Greg. Um, Greg. Greg's law firm, Alliance Defending Freedom, represented Conestoga Wood and also many of the um, organizations involved in the uh, nonprofits litigation and, uh, with the Little Sisters of the Poor. And Asma also worked on the Hobby Lobby case when she was at Beckett. Um, so I want to turn to looking ahead now to the next 25 years. 
as has already been discussed, the coalition that formed in 1993, it has um, broken apart somewhat. And some of the groups that were originally involved in, in passing RIFRA now have adopted the belief that um, we actually don't want to support the freedom of religion of those people who disagree with us. Um, particularly on certain controversial issues that have been referred to, like contraception um, and also sexual orientation and gender identity. And now we saw in the 115th Congress that um, Democratic members of Congress introduced the Do No Harm Act, which would uh, significantly limit RIFRA's application when it comes to issues like contraception and sexual orientation and gender identity. So there are two trends in our society right now. One is that the government's claims um, upon citizens have grown. Uh, the contraceptive mandate is one example. And the other trend is that our society continues to become more religiously diverse. So if these two trends continue in the next 25 years, how do you think um, uh, the challenges to RIFRA could affect religious freedom? And please feel free to conclude your comments with any recommendations you have, either for policymakers um, or for the rest of us to keep alive the spirit of RIFRA. So, I'm confident <clears throat> that RIFRA will survive the current challenges it faces because Americans prefer compromise over coercion. Since Hobby Lobby, since that case Hobby Lobby was decided, critics have increasingly argued that RIFRA is being used in novel ways that impose third-party harms. In other words, they've been claiming that religious people are using RIFRA to harm others. But RIFRA has only been used in new ways because of unprecedented government intrusions. Prior to the Obama administration, no one could have ever imagined that the federal government would attempt to force nuns to provide their employees with abortion-inducing drugs. For the same groups that favored the abortion-inducing drug mandate to come forward and say that RIFRA has been used in novel ways reminds me of the old joke definition of the word chutzpah for a person to murder his parents and then throw himself on the mercy of the court as an orphan. RIFRA is about allowing Jews, Americans of all faiths and no faith to compromise and reach win-win solutions. If a religious pharmacist has religious objections to providing abortion-inducing drugs, he can make arrangements with the pharmacist down the street and send all customers requesting such drugs to that store. That's a win-win solution. The customer gets his drugs, and the pharmacist doesn't have to violate his faith. Repealing or weakening RIFRA substitutes government coercion for compromising coexistence. Imagine a state where a law requires every pharmacist to stock every drug, and there's no RIFRA in place. The pharmacist and his clients cannot reach a mutually beneficial agreement. The pharmacist must provide abortion-inducing drugs. And his conscience is irrelevant. That's not just a hypothetical. That's a case that actually happened in Washington State, where there is no RIFRA. Of course, there are areas where coercion is necessary, but as we heard before, that's already part of the law. RIFRA clearly states that it does not provide accommodations in situations where the government has a compelling interest in enforcing the law. So, for example... No accommodation can be granted from laws banning racial discrimination. There is no reason to further weaken or water down RIFRA, as has been suggested by some of its critics. Saying that RIFRA would not apply in any case where any amount of third-party harm, as opposed to the significant level of harm necessary for a compelling interest test to be passed, would just obliterate RIFRA. Another reason why I'm confident RIFRA will persevere is that the faces of RIFRA's supporters are much more appealing than the faces of its adversaries. On one side, we have a customer who insisted that a Christian baker create a cake featuring Satan performing sex acts. 
On the other side, we have a florist who happily served gay customers but had a conscience-based objection to creating floral arrangements for gay weddings, a request that would have actually required her to attend the wedding that she had a conscience objection to attending. On one side, we have government bureaucrats who want to control every aspect of Americans' lives, and on the other side, we have a Native American feather dancer who wants access to eagle feathers to perform religious rituals. If those are the two sides of the debate, I'm confident the Americans will choose the pro-RIFRA side. And as for a suggestion for strengthening RIFRA, one way in which opponents of RIFRA and courts have gone around RIFRA is that the statute says it only applies in cases where a religious person's free exercise of religion is substantially burdened, and they've seized on that word substantially burdened to say that courts can look into how important a religious practice is to a particular religious observer and say you're only protected if the practice that's being burdened is very important to you. What RIFRA really means is that, and this is what the court said in Hobby Lobby and Holt versus Hobbes, is that you get a protection if the government punishment for violating your faith is a significant burden. If the government says violate the smallest minutia of your faith or pay a million dollars, that's a substantial burden because a million dollars is a substantial burden. Legislators can clarify and make it very clear to courts that that language in substantial burden is a substantial burden from the government and not a substantial burden from God. So when I think of everything that's going on right now um, in society broadly and more specifically the way it's impacting um, the perception and the attempts to amend RIFRA, um, I can't help but sort of to view it in more of a global context. Um, also, just given my my experience working on um, international advocacy in other countries on specifically issues like blasphemy laws, um, and in these countries, religious liberty is literally a, a matter of life and death. And those experiences have given me pretty sobering insight into what a society looks like when the fundamental human right to religious liberty is threatened. You say the wrong thing and you'll find yourself in prison. You interpret your religion differently from the mainstream and you find yourself on death row. I've seen firsthand what the ramifications would be if Americans too started carving out broad exceptions to religious liberty because we failed to see the importance of a particular belief or we found that the belief offended our liberal sensibilities. And so I realize those two contexts, contexts seem very different and alarmingly, and it may be a little alarming to make even the parallel, um, but I think that the closer we inch to that, I mean, there's always, that, that in itself is it's problematic, just sort of approximating um, some of the things that I've seen uh, overseas. So it's this type of vigilance that has motivated my own approach to religious liberty claims that I don't agree with. A phrase that I picked up from Seamus Hassan, the, former, the, the founder of the Beckett Fund, is that everyone has the right to be wrong. And that's exactly it. We have to protect everyone's right to be wrong. We don't have to agree with them um, in order to protect their rights to say, with it, and to say and to believe and to act on their beliefs. Today, the scope of wrong is becoming wider and wider, and even more worryingly, the attempts to limit RIFRA, in addition to other types of legislation, punish wrong views with government penalties. And I'm worried about this willingness by many Americans to give the government more authority in restricting action it doesn't agree with. So while these attempts are coming mostly from the left against the right, there are also worrisome trends on the right. Um, that I think are important to mention. And these aren't really any attempts to change the text or refer, but it's really what I, what I sort of alluded to in the Murfreesboro context, but it, the, the certain attempts and many, by, by a number of sort of uh, prominent actors to limit the scope of religious liberty 
uh, to certain religious groups and to deny it to others, uh, specifically to Muslims. I'm referring to this attempt to cast Islam and Islamic law and Muslim religious practice as political and not religious, and thus undeserving of religious liberty protection. And there's also empirical evidence backing up the fact that when a lower federal um, court judges have also, they tend to, uh, Muslim, Muslims bringing religious liberty claims in lower federal courts to, uh, win half, a, half, as many, half as many times as people of other religious beliefs. And so there is this social trend that's uh, echoed in many sort of prominent political circles. Um, and then there's also this sort of worrisome trend in the courts itself. And that also bothers me because I think that when you think about religious liberty and you think about refer really sort of upholding religious liberty for all, um, and specifically having a balancing standard that is there to to moderate any fears we might have, whether it be fears from the left about um, Christian nationalism or fears on uh, among others about a Muslim takeover, whatever the fears might be, uh, the balancing act that RIFRA provides is really there to sort of create peaceful pluralism. Um, so in terms of recommendations, I would say, A, just remember that there is this balancing standard there. No matter what your fears of a religious group are, uh, RIFRA handles it pretty well. Um, and and then also uh, some of the empirical uh, research that Howie and I had mentioned uh, before that, you know, you might have a certain conception of what RIFRA does and or opens a door for, but in fact, the empirical evidence makes clear uh, what RIFRA actually results in. Thank you. So the short answer to your question about what the world will look like in 25 years is, of course, I don't know. Uh, but I do know that it will be a struggle. Um, I think it will be more difficult than even the last 25 years. Uh, some of the challenges to RIFRA have been hinted at already. Uh, we have scholars and litigants arguing that RIFRA violates the Constitution, that creating exemptions for religious people constitutes an impermissible preference for religion that violates the Establishment Clause, whether or not some third party suffers a harm as a consequence of the RIFRA-driven exemption or not. Second, the judiciary itself not just striking down RIFRA as unconstitutional, but its interpretation of the elements. Remember that almost every court of appeals that adjudicated the HHS mandate cases held that the mandate did not substantially burden the religious exercise of nonprofits who were forced to facilitate access to objectionable drugs. This is a clearly incorrect understanding of RIFRA, but nonetheless, it won the day in all but one of the circuit uh, courts. Also, compelling interest. I mean, it gives judges the authority to decide what counts as a compelling interest and thus justifies substantial burdens on religious exercise. So we need to be vigilant in our court arguments uh, as well. Really, all three branches of government, in a sense, reflect or, or have the capacity to undermine and damage RIFRA. Um, I think this current administration has been a bit of an outlier in its respect for RIFRA. Uh, General Whitaker mentioned the executive order that President Trump issued and the guidance that the Department of Justice put together. It is remarkable the extent to which the department is saying to itself and to the entirety of the federal government, RIFRA restrains you. You don't get to do what you want and then defend it in court and see what happens. RIFRA imposes an affirmative duty on you, executive branch officials, to make sure that you're not substantially burden, burdening religious exercise. And if you are, to, that, 
to assure that um, it satisfies the strict scrutiny test. Now, that guidance is not set in the Constitution. It's not even in a statute. It could disappear in the next presidential administration. So while I applaud this administration for its respect and deference and, and following its duty, frankly, to comply with RIFRA, I'm concerned about the future. And, of course, legislative efforts to undermine RIFRA. Uh, Emily mentioned the Do No Harm Act, uh, which um, you explained well. Also, the Equality Act, which was introduced in the last uh, Congress, which would essentially work a partial repeal of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Those who are subject to uh, the SOGI sexual orientation, gender identity, non-discrimination obligations that the Equality Act would impose would not be able to assert even a RIFRA defense. They wouldn't even have a chance to get into court and argue that their rights have been violated. I think the final threat to RIFRA and really the religious freedom principles that it embodies is the people. Um, I have seen, and many of you have probably seen as well, diminished respect for religious liberty in the culture at large, in the populace at large. That used to be a unifying phrase. Religious liberty had a good brand, and really now it doesn't. And that's a problem because, as we all know, our legislative officials, our executive branch officials, and our judges don't operate in a vacuum. So I hate to be, maybe that all sounds pessimistic, but it's not intended to be. It's intended to motivate us to understand with clarity the magnitude of the, of the threat that we face and to respond accordingly. And how do we respond? Well, I think we have to start at home. We have to equip our own communities to understand the importance of religious freedom, to understand the theological underpinnings of religious freedom within our various faith traditions, and to equip our faith communities to defend religious freedom and to defend their religious exercise. You uh, referred, Emily, to the increasingly diverse uh, religious composition of the United States, and I think that is entirely correct. But I am inclined to believe that people of faith are mostly arrayed on one side of this battle, and it is this growing class of the nuns, very, not, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, uh, who are very aggressive about um, imposing uh, their worldview on dissenting religious believers. And I think that creates opportunity and space for what you see on this panel today, which is interfaith cooperation and assistance to one another as each of our respective communities faces challenges to our freedom. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, um, we're going to conclude the event, and I wanted to, first of all, thank the staff of the Mies Center and uh, Deputy Director Tom Jipping for all the work that you put into this event, and also the staff of the DeVos Center. And I want to thank um, all of you for coming. I think today we've all heard some inspiring ideas about how to protect religious freedom, how to rebuild the consensus around RIFRA. And it's clear that in order to protect religious freedom, we have to protect religious freedom for all, um, not only for those uh, who may share the same beliefs that we have. And so finally, please join me in thanking the panelists.